The episode you're about to hear has been a long, long time coming, uh, and I know how excited you all are for an hour and a half of crack-addicted middle school teacher talk, but before we dive into the episode proper, I'm going to roll a few minutes of Cassandra up top. For the last year or so, Cassandra has been trapped in one of the most nightmarish, horrifying, hellish situations I've ever encountered, and in some ways, um, the situation's ongoing. She doesn't get into any of the truly disturbing stuff in the clip I'm going to play, but what I'm privy to is beyond shocking, dark, fucked up, almost beyond belief. But it's not my story to tell. It is a story that needs to be told and heard, and that's why I'm going to run this bit of the interview up top. It's about five minutes long, and then we hop into Half Nelson. So thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. You recently started a second podcast with your friend Tiff, and that was prompted by something that you have been going through for a, a year and some months, three year and three months approximately? Yeah, like right at my birthday, around August of last year. Not this, yeah. And well, what had happened was... I decided to buy myself like a birthday present, which would be a, you know, a podcast with another podcaster and you could pay $200. And I'm like, I'm going to get NT lawyer because I want to hear about Fred Savage and the wonder years and growing pains. And I'm a huge nerd and this is going to be a huge treat. And then it just kind of spiraled into this nightmare that has not ended, but I actually do feel like it has ended recently and it's funny because um, Bird sent me a postcard a few weeks ago that is like a watercolor and it says um, all things in time. And I put it up and I just kept looking at it and I'm like, OK, come on. Like, <laughs> when is it coming? Something has to something's got to give, you know, the show is called Drenched in Drama. Um, you can find it on Spotify. That's where I went and listened. Is it elsewhere as well? Could, did you? Yeah, we do have a Patreon because there's so much sensitive content on there. And it's um, like trigger warning, you know, for eating disorders, uh, fetish content, um, domestic violence, just violence towards women in general, of course. Um, and that kind of stuff, you know, it is there. It's on the Patreon. And, you know, almost my entire income was taken away in one foul swoop. I had a false... Uh, police report taken out on me um, by this person who I had been dating for over a year. We were together. He had lived with me and everything. And like, as I was being served papers for stalking, I was getting text messages from him saying, I love you. And like sending me his flightware information. And that was one of the craziest parts of that show was like at like as the day that you're getting served and you're getting the I love you text, you're also getting like a cop had just been at your door with with like and, harassment man. papers. So the uh, NT lawyer is a has a podcast and is sort of think like celebrity blogger for those of you who don't know, but actually is somewhat of an Internet presence. This is like a like a, a low level celebrity online mm-hmm. person. Yeah, crazy days and nights. Gotcha. And yeah, he does make a good amount of income off of that blog, revealing blind items about celebrities. And then his podcast where, you know, he just does episodes. A lot of those episodes I wrote or co-hosted on and things like that. Um, sure. So. so you did it. You did an episode of uh, his show. And after after that, a relationship formed. 
Or yeah, I mean, I that's such a yeah. So he actually, I mean, he gave me the keys to the castle right after we recorded. A few days later, he said, "Wow, you know, I'm on vacation and I need you to go onto my Patreon for me and upload this episode. Here's the p- password." And I thought, "Oh my god, like this is Gossip Girl, but real life. This is insane." Like, how could this person trust me so much with all this money, all these secrets, all of this, this trust? It was just an immediate bond. And, you know, then it started to become about, let me learn about you and your abuse and everything about it in great detail. And let's get close. And, you know, it kind of escalated out of control. There's stuff on Reddit about it. There's stuff on X about it. Um yeah and that's that's why like i just want to put it out there because he is a large content creator i'm a small content creator you know i'm not the only one this has happened to and i just wanted people to be aware i mean this is somebody that solicited hundreds of pictures and videos from me in my opinion that's not consensual because i was under the impression that they were a completely different person and i was conned the level of conning that went into this talking to my children you know false divorce papers, um, fake mortgage paper stuff, you know, crazy stuff. I really couldn't even believe or understand what was happening or that I had been abused in any way. I don't know. Um, It was just really, really, really hard to process and I'm still processing it, you know. Just a few film nerds breaking out of a rut Drooling over cinema that's hard and uncut Stick us in your ear, thrill to this month's picks And come and listen in, we're measuring flicks Hello everybody, welcome to Measuring Flicks, the film appreciation podcast that plays favorites. I am Max Peterson and sitting down for a very special and what is very likely going to be a pretty wild and pretty intense episode. Um, I'm sitting down, uh, for those of you who are playing along at home... We were one short on Ryan Gosling, our Ryan Gosling uh, special feature month. We're, we're missing a movie, and that's because it's mostly 99.99% my fault, but I am finally sitting down this fine evening uh, with very special guests. This is your first appearance on Measuring Flicks, actually. I've been on your show a couple of times, but you have never crossed the streams and been over here. Welcome to the show, Cassandra. Um, Thank you, Thank you so uh, much. Um, I sent you this movie in mm-hmm. uh, in DVD form ages many, ago, yeah. many, so many moons ago <laughs> with a $20 bill inside. And I said, please watch this movie. I will pay you $20 if you just watch this movie, please. And here we are all these years later. It is literally it. it is literally like two years later. And here, okay, so listener, you need to know the, the strange tale of this film. Um, so actually, I originally um, like met Cassandra and started talking to her th- because of the podcast. It all started with Divergent Suicides, I believe. Um, uh, just a, f- a fan of the show or caught those episodes and they really resonated with you. So you reached out. Um, and from there, it turns out that Cassandra's like one of the raddest people <laughs> that I've ever met on the internet. Super legit. Um, she has her own show. Um, I've been on it a couple times. I've talked about it here before. It's Cassandra Explains It All. It's got a 90s nostalgia podcast, which is just, it can be a lifesaver when you just need some like feel good throwback stuff, but it can also be pretty intense. Some of your late, like more recent episodes about Shia LaBeouf and Marilyn Manson, for example, are pretty fucking buck wild. 
Um, it's a really it's a really cool time. So you should all go check that out. Um, and you just started another podcast, actually. But before before we get into that, because that'll be that's going to be a little mini rabbit hole. The half Nelson story is this. So after we started uh, talking a little bit, Cassandra sent a, a like, kind of like a cool bundle, like care package vibe thing over uh, to Bird and I. And one of the things that was in there was half Nelson on DVD. So the movie we're talking about today is uh, 2006 half Nelson directed by Ryan Fleck. The script is by Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden. Um, stars Ryan Gosling. Uh, th- this the performance in this is unfucking believable. You can't take anything away from the other ones, but there's something about this movie that just crawls into your soul, and and it it resonates. It makes your bones feel like they're humming. It's you can't look away from it, even though you want to look away from it almost every second. It's so raw and real See, and harsh it's amazing I, yeah and you you imagine that and it's like that's how i found your podcast was virgin suicides and i feel like i'm drawn to very dark art mm. and film and for some reason yeah this is one of those films just like virgin suicides that it resonates with you it stays with you what's interesting with ryan and why i suggested that series is because he has so many films like that and you wouldn't expect that of like a huge Hollywood actor, but um, like you said, Lars and the real girl, also the believer and an incredible piece of work. That was another one that you recommended to us was the believer. It was the, so the first and last of his movies that we talk about for that series are both, both you and uh, God damn, dude, you picked some real harsh films, Cassandra. They are. I mean, they what are what I identify with and with half Nelson, especially yeah, after I saw this movie, I know it's so like stupid, but I painted my chalk wall in my dining room that I record in front of all the time. Mm. And I like went just through this whole half Nelson phase and I really identified with just being that isolated character who kind of is saved by their environment. Um which I think is another running theme in Lars and the Real Girl too. Yeah, like the way the way that he he's like living in that totally isolated reality, sort of detached from detached from the environment that is in or the the community that is in, and then that community comes together in a really incredible way. If, if listener, if you haven't seen Lars and the Real Girl, um, if this if this type of movie we're talking about sounds really terrifying, Lars and the Real Girl is like the lighter hearted version of it that won't fucking scar you for the rest of your life. So that that's a good entry point to this type of stuff. We, I was kind of resistant to doing a Gosling month at the very beginning of the idea because I think like a lot of people. He suffers from the like the Robert Pattinson effect. You think of Robert Pattinson, you think of Twilight immediately. When I think of Ryan Gosling, not anymore, but back then when I thought of Ryan Gosling, I was like the Notebook. You know, you, I, I think at one point you said that like Ryan Gosling is the like the greatest living actor or like the greatest actor who's ever lived or something. And I was like, okay, I have to watch like at least a couple more if Cassandra's like this sold on this idea. And I'm pretty sure that the I'm pretty sure the first one I watched, I think it was Drive. I'm pretty sure that I like just on my own went out and was like, well, I know I like Nicholas Winding Refn as a director, so I'm going to give this one a spin and drive blew me away. So then I was like, Cassandra, send me the list. And I started going through them and like some of the ones we didn't even cover, like Blade Runner 2049 or A Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, He's he's truly a blue velvet, blue, uh, blue valentine. 
Valentine. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Blue Velvet's David Lynch. Also a fabulous film. But yeah, Blue Valentine. Oh my God. And again, like dark, dark yeah. subject matter, fucked up stuff. One of the best that I can think of is another Nicholas Winding Refn film. It's um, Only God Forgives. Have you seen that one? Yes. Um, and also Song to Song is one that people may not remember that he did, but it's very indie and it's very dark and dramatic it's all it's all gone pete tong there's oh god that's a good movie there's so fucking many exceptional it's hard to find a ryan gosling movie that's not amazing um yeah. he really shines in like the the indie vibe or in like the um uh, like in an auteur space like it's it's incredible so but to not to get too far away from half nelson I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch it the year that you sent it because that was. I'm pretty sure you sent it in like 2020, and I just couldn't handle that shit at all. I was like, um, yeah. "This is a drug addicted teacher, and I kind of just need to not do that right now." When I finally did watch it, I was completely blown away. So I reached out to you and was like, "Let's do an episode." But yeah, so it has been. We have been trying to do this episode for legitimately more than half a year, maybe a year. It might even be as much as a year of us trying to get Half Nelson recorded. Mm-hmm. And here we fucking finally are, Cassandra. <laughs> My feel good movie. A crack addicted teacher. In this is what I watch to feel better, Max. Do you see my problem? You know, honestly, yeah. I mean, I get. I honestly get it. I'm I'm guilty of the same thing. I tr- I try to put movies on for the dogs to give them sound when I like leave the house and stuff. And I'm scrolling through my list, and all it is is like Saw, Martyrs, Let the Right One In. I'm like, these are not no. soothing movies for the dogs at all. These are like nightmare hellscapes with nothing but screaming and chainsaws. Um, right. So what we're talking about today is uh, uh, Half Nelson, 2006, starring Ryan Gosling, Sharika Epps as Dre, um, Anthony Mackie, uh, Monique Kernan, Dennis O'Hare, Tina Holmes. It's a huge cast. Right off the bat, the f- the our introduction to the film, so we get some really soft jazz music that plays, kind of like bebop jazz that's just in the background, and then that grating, blaring alarm clock. The black one we all had, the eh, eh, eh one. And our first shot is a close-up of Ryan Gosling just staring into space, sitting in his underwear at a glass table in front of his couch. And he it is it's obvious he's been awake all night, but this was like the moment when I, I realized that like the true depth of Ryan Gosling's talent as an actor. And Mostly what he gets across in this movie is the like sine wave ups and downs of horrendous drug abuse. And he nails the nuance of it, the subtlety of it. Like this, what we're the functioning s- addict, barely. Barely functioning. Yeah, like and and sometimes that's even slipping a little bit, but people are cutting him slack because that's what people do because addicts are really good about getting second chances mm-hmm. and third chances and fourth chances that first facial expression is dopamine depletion getting high over and over and over and over again all night long until your brain can't squeeze any more dopamine out so you're just like a shell you're just you're like you're just this empty shell the blink stands up shuffles even the small sound he makes when he bends down to turn the alarm clock off Fuck 
did I really just do that again? And now I got to go do this. It's like that, that self disgust, but there's enough, you got just enough gas left to like, all right, well, I guess what can you do? I either lay down here and die or I get up and I go and do my job. And that's the only thing keeping him alive is that job. Those kids. Yeah. It's, I mean, we, once we get to the party scene in a second and all of the party scenes are amazing. Every time we see him go to that bar, set himself up with a whiskey and then start trying to find initially in my notes I kept saying like oh he's out hunting women he's out hunting women but I don't think he is I think he's just out hunting some kind of like connection an actual connection he's trying to find like the adult analog of the connection that he has with his class where they're like they're connecting their minds are connecting but the world that he lives in this this drug fueled cracked out burned out world there is no real intellectual connection. So he wants adult relationships. And one cool, another cool thing about this that I like about this and Believer is this movie is mostly shot on hand cam. Insane. Almost everything but one shot, right? Or there's there might be like a dolly, you know, there, there this... might be like a dolly or a tracking shot, but everything else is just handwork and it's not even stabilized. It doesn't feel like um, like people are shooting with like a, like, even a shoulder rig it feels literally like someone's just got the camera up it is and they had to they couldn't watch the dailies like as it was happening so they had to yeah yeah it was like a blind faith stressing out crying over scenes situation and they shot this all really fast and is that why was it the the speed of the production was why they could yeah the other thing i love about the look of this is the graininess of it this is mm-hmm. not like a 4K shot on a red movie. There's a lot of film grain in here. And yeah, it- and it's almost like I wanted, you know, I think it's better than the Florida Project. I, I think even though the Florida Project looks better, I like the look of this film better. They're just similar. I'm saying like slice of life. Oh, kind sure. Of. Yeah, yeah. Flo- I've, I've never seen Florida Project. Is it another Gosling flick? I'm just writing no. down every Gosling movie. You, you should mentioned. check it out. Okay. It's not a Gosling flick, but it was... It's an interesting indie flick that did pretty well. Was it after this or before? Um, I want to say after. I could so see. After I watched this the first time, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'll bet you there was like 50 movies about troubled inner city school teachers after this one. Well, what's crazy is this movie could easily fall into like the inner city white savior category right but it doesn't it somehow like totally walks that line and then also with the student teacher relationship i'm always wondering like oh no is it going to cross that line and it doesn't it almost does at one point there's like there's a moment that's so close to it that it does make you uncomfortable but i think what saves it what saves it is ryan gosling's performance because it makes him uncomfortable like retroactively a few seconds later he was just high as fuck he was mm-hmm. high as fuck and he like caught himself in the moment. He's like, wait a minute, what in the shit am I doing? At that school dance, you realize that he's falling into a pre-wired groove. When he's high and he's dancing, it's always at that bar with girls, you know? So like here he is at a school dance, high and dancing and his like his like lizard brain takes over and he just falls into that pattern or groove and then his teacher brain like he keeps these two lives totally separate and in that moment they blend just enough to get him into a a bad spot and he catches himself and the fucking way that he 
like deals with like oh my god is he goes and fucking smokes crack behind the school like the next scene it's it's so gnarly this movie really creates a, a visual feel the movie feels like drugs in a way the like you're not laser focused on something you do kind of drift like what you're paying attention to is always there you're never they're not so it's not like Blair Witch Project you know where shit's shaking around but, mm-hmm. but you're not steady on your feet. It's such a visceral um, experience of not wanting to exist, of refusing to um, submit to reality or, you know, to submit to the day and just like even being in your own body. That's what it feels like to me. Right. How so? I, I like where you're I like what the you're way saying, that but... it just drags you through the movie. It's like he's being drugged through his life. And that's how it feels through the whole movie. Like he's not a willing participant in his own life. Yes. Some of the best scenes in here are him in the classroom because it's the only time that it doesn't that he f- actually feels like he has some agency and he's mm-hmm. actively engaged in what he's doing. But you're right. Every other scene someone else is the impetus of that scene like when he meets his ex and they like get back together he's always like even when they meet on the park bench you know you're totally right he's he is sitting there when she arrives and after she leaves he's still sitting there all of the action is happening to him and around him because he's so lost in this pit life is something that's happening to and around him rather than something he's participating in you're totally right dialectics genius yeah the dialectics classroom scenes are incredible if the kids are giving each other shit rather than like go to the office or whatever he has them like study and research an important date or moment or event in history and then present like a short summation of that to the rest of the class and i unless i'm mistaken the other students pick it so they kind of all have like that's another way to get them involved in history is to have them use historical knowledge as like um in lieu of bullying almost like oh you're t- we're going to be talking shit to each other you're going to let them get away with that and then oh finally one kid like goes too far and he goes the kid who's took the brunt of the shit gives the other kid a date and then that kid has to go and find out what it is and provide like a little summation so they've all got their little weapons and what they've weaponized is history Um, but he refuses to teach to the book which he's in trouble with like with administration well what are they wild they want him to do the what like you know like eight Columbus sailed the ocean blue and hey I need you what they're actually studying civil rights right she's like I need you to get back uh there that bit where she drags him into the hallway and she's like I need you to get back to the civil rights binder did you even open it he goes yeah yeah and there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in that binder (laughs) (laughs) oh my god the principal makes him spit his gum out into her hand god there's well, I did have on my notes here, it says, on May 17th, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed racial segregation in public schools. The ruling ended the five-year case of Oliver Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Um, unanimous decision. The, that was like one of the lessons that they had to learn. It's one of the first that they, um, Yeah, we learned about Attica, the Attica prison riots. And I love too that, uh, there, I can't remember which one it is, but at one of them, after the kid finishes... Um, like giving their their little like recitation of this historical moment they turn off camera and they say is that true 
And the way that that kid says it, I almost wonder if the actor was like reading their line or whatever and then turned to the mm-hmm. off-camera director to be like, for real? Like, am I, is, did you make this up for the movie or did I, is that a real thing? I mean, and it is. It's like pe- these people, and it's not just his character. All the people are living sad lives in a world that wants nothing to do with them, right? Because in Sharika Epps' story, she, Dre, you know, yeah. her. it's not that her mom doesn't want her, but she works a full-time job, and the dad's not there, and the brother's in prison. And, you know, even her brother's friend who's taking care of her, it feels like he's just kind of using her. Frank? Um. Yeah, it feels like... He's uh, yeah. It almost seems and... like he's grooming her to like become mm-hmm. one of. Actually, he did. You're he literally does use her to deliver drugs by the end. But it starts with just like, hey, here's some candies, and hey, you're, I watched out for your brother, and your brother watched out for me. Hey, you want to you want a job? And even Dan is using her in a way because he really, I think, just doesn't want her to go tell on him. So he becomes you know friendly with her. And yeah, it just feels like everybody is being used and is like in just basically unwilling to be in their lives in this movie, especially when we go to see his family too. Right. They all seem miserable too. That is such a, the scene where he goes to visit his family is so brutal and hard to sit through. Oh, with his dad. I just, it breaks my heart. Worst. Oh, and you know, the the worst part is, is like, But, like, one of the interesting things about this movie is even though there are so many reprehensible characters and horrid people, you know them, too. You know people like all of these people. Yes. I wanted to ask you about um, about Dre, the Sharika Epps character. After a girls' basketball game, he thinks that the locker room is empty. Um, Dan, Ryan Gosling's character, goes into the bathroom in in one of the locker rooms and smokes crack because he doesn't have enough money. He normally does just regular powdered cocaine, the the white, and that's really interesting too because cocaine is historically the white version of that substance, and crack is the inner city air quotes black version of that drug so we actually see dan make the transition during this movie from cocaine to crack and after he does he does go back and forth a little but once he gets into crack that's kind of where he stays and And ryan uh, gosling does not look like he's a stranger to a pipe or a a straw very comfortable very comfortable with his accoutrement i want to go back to the scene where he we see him windex the table and stuff for sure but uh what we're talking about here is he he smokes crack in the bathroom and gets too high and starts to like freak he it's he's freaking Mm. out and um dre comes back she forgot something or her ride no her ride didn't show up so she's come back into the locker room and she finds him and sees the drugs and sees the paraphernalia and then from that point on he never overtly comes out and says like hey don't you can't tell on me like don't tell on me or whatever but after he's leveled out he gives her a ride home and they do kind of start to form this relationship it's almost as though like her knowledge of his addiction or his like dark secret becomes the little grit of sand that forms the pearl of their relationship as the movie progresses and i i wanted to get your thoughts on that at at the beginning we he does like you know it kind of like interact with her in the classroom and they kind of chuck and jive and make a joke or whatever but he's doing that with all of the kids do you think what 
differentiates their relationship is that is that the rubicon that they cross is that the defining moment that causes the relationship yeah i think like finally he feels seen or the addiction feels seen because she is not confused what's going on when she finds him she's not like oh no are you sick you know she knows exactly what it is right she fully understands what he's doing and i think that's probably a relief in some way to him right i mean that's the only person who can really understand him which is sad uh, like do you think that he's only being nice to her to like buy her silence with his kindness because that would honestly be classic addict behavior at the same time like i mentioned earlier there are two sides to this guy dan dan is an addict and dan has mm-hmm. all the addict traits for sure he's manipulative um he can he uses his charm to like buy grace and wiggle room for wrongdoings and things like that. He's selfish as fuck, <laughs> but um, but at the same time, there is like this genuine note that rings in in the relationship between those two characters. I do think he actually yeah. cares. You meant you mentioned at the beginning the whole like uh like white savior in a like inner city setting trope. Do you? I'm I'm hesitant. I mean, like my 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 knee jerk reaction to their relationship is he doesn't want her to fall into this same. He he wants to. It it does feel like he wants to save her from the fate that he's worried she's going to. Especially when he finds out she's hanging out with Frank, who he has purchased drugs from in the past. He's like, you can't be hanging out with with him. So I'm. You're a smart kid. You can do stuff and you can make it, but. So I don't know what what it is totally it? pulls the curtain back on the entire white savior trope, right? It's like, let's see how this is actually operating. I think that he does want to save her. The One of the standout moments of this movie for me is when they're just talking and he's like, um, he tells her that cheesy joke. She tells him the cheesy joke because he's oh, going yeah, yeah, yeah. to have, gonna have, have a, a date. date, right? It's just like <laughs> they do have this heartfelt banter and this is like just the most mundane, boring dialogue, but it works really well between them. So I do think like there is an actual connection between them. I mean, yeah, I think he's always manipulating the situation, but I like I said, I think he is more controlled than manipulative even though we watch him attempt to rape a woman later but that is fucked up that is an insane moment in this movie yeah he's like a totally different person around this girl though than when he's around adult women oh okay i thought you meant the um the teacher that he's dating and then eventually attempts to rape while he's high but yeah you're right dre brings out something in him but all all the kids do he it's it's him trying to like they're all trying to save each other like you said earlier these are all like discarded and uncared about people this is like a massively underserved community and these are all these are all people with problems which is very Mm -hmm. tragic when you look at the students who have these problems when they're only like you know these are these are like you know elementary school students that we're looking at here i i think if there is a savior complex it's not like well here let me swoop in and save you i think it's like how do I help these kids not grow up to be me? You know, like, I think he sees him... Because there's that bit where he goes to Frank, right? He goes to Frank and he's like, hey, you gotta leave, you gotta stop hanging out with Dre, okay? You gotta leave her alone, that's it. And Frank even says to him, he's like, what? You know, like, what? She needs, what does she need? You? 
you're going to save her? Like, you know, <laughs> like whites, it, like literally he calls him out, dude. I, I know her family. I basically am her family. You know, I, I take, I help take care of her. You just don't understand. You don't understand how this ecosystem actually works. This is how people, this is how people help people in this world. And I love Ryan Gosling's response. Cause he's fucking cracked out when he goes there. He's like, his eyes are all red and he's like, hasn't slept and he's sweating and he looks like shit. And his response to Frank is, I don't know. I don't know. Right? Like he, you can you can see him recognize that he is not in any way the correct role model for a child. He is not the right person to like be casting moral aspersions on anyone or talking about anyone's, you know, like, like, hey, man, she can do better than you. And he's like, what, you? Are you that? Because I'm not high on crack in the middle of a fucking street right now screaming at a guy. You, That's you. Let's be clear. So it is another example of Dan not having any agency too. he just kind of goes along with whatever. It's a moment where he tries to have agency, though. He's he tries, but he doesn't. He can't because he's because the drug has robbed him of yeah. it again. He well, a, he choose. I think he chooses the, the addiction in that moment. Yeah, because Frank, drink. Frank says, "You want to you want to drink? You want to come on inside?" And yeah, and they, they we don't see what happens next, but it is inferred that Frank sells him drugs because later when Frank is talking to Dre, um, Dre says he's my friend. Uh, cause he's talking with Frank and, or I'm sorry, Dre is talking with Frank and Frank says, he's your teacher, Dre. Cause I think Frank thinks that there's this relationship that's forming between the two of them is inappropriate. And, uh, she says, he's my friend. And Frank responds, he's a base head. Base heads don't have friends. And Accurate. it fucking really is. The first time we see him settle in for a night of cocaine binging. First, he listens to his voicemails. He comes in and as he's gathering up the accoutrement, he hits play on on his voicemails. And it's a debt collector being like, uh, you owe like a shitload of money. Then I think it's like, uh, don't forget there's a PTA meeting, something from the school. And then it's his ex-girlfriend, right? And she's calling like, hey, I'll be in town. Do you want to get together? And he rewinds it and plays it again. But as he's... At he as he like we see him in the back room like getting some shit together while the messages are playing and after he hears her voice he like comes out and leans out of the out of the door and he's got a bottle of windex hanging from his finger and he's got his straw and he plays the message again and we hear like the tail end of it as he sits down at his glass table he windexes it. It's that fucked up thing where like you're like the works, like a drug addict's works. The ritual. Yeah, it be like just just having the the things with you know, like Pulp Fiction does a really great version of this when Vincent shoots up heroin. He gets out his little black case and you see the zipper go around and the mm-hmm. bag opens, screwing the needle onto the syringe and then the the little blowback that you get like it's all part of that magic ritual. It's it's like what they talk about with cigarette smokers. You don't even really it's not the cigarette you're it's not the nicotine you're after. You just want you, you tap the pack, you pick out the stick, you screw it into your lip, the feel of it against your lip, the sound of that lighter, the brilliant use of close-ups. I've never seen a movie that shoots so close before. They don't even sometimes give you an establishing shot. Sometimes you're just like on his hand as he's windexing the table or and you're so close to him. 
when you're in the ritual, there is no room around you. There's mm-hmm. the table and the bottle, and we we see him wipe it down. He has a totally beautifully like razor cut straw, and he starts cracking his knuckles. It's like a fighter getting ready for a fight almost, or like somebody like like rubbing their hands together getting ready for a meal. He's got a bottle of Cuddy Sark on the table too, which is poor man's speedball. He's got his upper and his downer. He's going to do Coke and Scotch, Coke and Scotch. You get a little t- too high, that Scotch brings you back down, and the Scotch makes you feel fuzzy, you bump the Coke again until it's time to party. And after that, it's that first scene of him doing Coke, is it's a, that's a really beautiful bit of filmmaking. That's a really incredibly shot scene, and that, the way he executes that is amazing. I love the first two girls that he meets at that bar though. He shows up and he's in a good, oh, you know, God. you know, he's he's floating, he's in a good spot when he shows up. He's got his he orders his his whiskey, smiles at that girl, you know, like gives her the eyebrows or whatever. And then we cut to later in the night to a moment that probably all of us have been in where you're you're fucked up and you're in like a like a hallway with two other people and you're like, "Yes, exactly." Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> no, I've always said that, man. And the other thing, you know, is it's like, why is it called Starbucks? Get it? Like money, space, they own the universe. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where you're like, you're connecting dots that aren't there. Definitely. And everybody's <laughs> fully on board. You're just like, yeah, dude. Yes. And that's why Procter and Gamble, the moon is actually the devil. And someone's like, I've always, I know, bro. I look at it all the always time. Knew and I'm, that. It's the devil, man. It's, it is every conversation you've ever had fucked up at a party. They oh, nail and it. You can see he's so disinterested in these women. Well, what is the what does the one woman say to him right away? She goes, "Oh yeah, I hate words." That's <laughs> the first thing she hears her say. I hate words. I hate words. <laughs> That's um, amazing. He realizes they're not interested at all because because he has no social skills. There's a moment where he starts to like lecture them and you see them glaze over and that's when he kisses the two women he's like oh i'll kiss you i'll kiss you let's go dance and it's almost like a weird inverse of that scene later when he brings some of his drug reality into the school dance you you see Mm -hmm. these little moments yeah yeah the line gets kind of blurry what do you think of the basketball stuff the team sucks they're terrible I i do too like if you had to pick a person to like get a group of people to work in unison, would you ever pick a crackhead? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> he's like the very last option. But I like the aesthetic that it mo- leaves to the movie. It I feel like it adds a lot visually. And it is the also- colors. I mean, just the colors in this movie stand out to me so much. The oranges, the greens. It's just unique. They- it's a unique palette. Yeah, definitely. School. It's got that old school house vibe. And what is on Dan's bookshelves, too? That actually is something I wanted to talk about because it is yeah. it's such a good pick. Um, what is what is how does um Sharika Epps say it? She's got a lot of books about black people. Or, no, right. Well, says, that's what she notices. Yeah. Right. Everybody that looks at his books notices something that they identify within themselves. Yeah. Later on, um, who plays? Scroll down on your screen just a little bit. Who plays the teacher that he dates? Do you know? Is it? 
Yeah, I think maybe Gina's right, but I'm not positive. Anyway, the the teacher that he ends up dating, she sees uh, the Communist Manifesto. So yes. she's like, "Are you a communist?" And he goes, "What's his line? If I had a copy of Mein Kampf, does that make me a Nazi?" Which is hilarious because he did the Believer right. just a few years before this. But um, <laughs> Nazis are so last year, baby. <laughs> yeah, he just just ain't cool to be a Nazi anymore, babe. Right. Um. The the one that he recommends to Dre is um, Soul on Ice. This was a real. This is a really interesting choice, honestly. Um, the author of that book, Eldridge Cleaver himself, was a, a rapist. He was a serial rapist and drug dealer, and that's what he was in prison for. Um, while he was in prison, he got really, really into Malcolm X, um, and and uh, Karl Marx. And he wrote this book about um, a lot of what Soul on Ice covers is about black identity and how like even self-conception and self-identity could be colonized. That's See, th- this is what I remember about it. But like it is possible to colonize somebody's self-identity by using the machine. machine. Yeah. It is very much a book about the machine and how the machine can subtly affect your self-perception and then colonize you from within and and the importance of fighting back against that that's and i think that's yeah i think that's what this movie's about i mean because i think that once you see the bookshelves and then you make the connections with the books that he has and the lessons that he's trying to teach them in class you realize or to me anyways it feels like He's um, drowning in the weight of real of like knowledge, right? It's like once you've learned something or learned so many things, you never can go back from it. Um, And it's like he knows too much and he knows that he's a part of this machine and that none of these kids or him are ever going to get out of the machine. And he's living a Groundhog's Day, you know, the worst version of it. Absolutely. Yeah. It and it's it's almost like a like a generational groundhog's day. You know, like an intellectual hell. It's it's almost like it's almost like a like a Lovecraft story where you like pull back the curtain and see the secrets of the universe and they're so fucked and horrifying and awful and massive and unchangeable that you feel hopeless and destroyed by it. And and it's like that line from the matrix or like you know the the common saying ignorance is bliss if you don't yes. know you can't be unhappy about about the state of affairs and once you know you can't unknow it you yeah know? because i don't think that his rosebud is this girl or his addiction i don't think he loves crack i think he loves escaping reality and that's why i think he is just intellectually trapped yeah, and uh, and even the Communist Manifesto, he's looking at mm-hmm. like sociopolitical systems, uh, like socioeconomic systems that are put in place to combat literally the machine that he exists in in this place. And he acknowledges... Well, you gotta be a part of the system to change the system, Max. Well, I, <laughs> he, he acknowledges that he's part of the system when the students call him out on it, when they're like... 
they're like you're aren't you the man you know you mm-hmm. work and he's like i he and he's like i i would do work for the government you know but mm-hmm. i i disagree with it but then he points out to them too he's like you're part of the machine if i'm part of the mm-hmm. machine you're part of the machine and so are you and you and you even though he's delivering that to those students in a lighthearted way i think it's that core truth that drives him when you have such horror at the state of affairs of the life that you find yourself inside there's a certain comfort and stupefaction let's let's run through the 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 scene where he is smoking crack in the bathroom you're right by the way you mentioned earlier that he seems to know his way around a pipe and the bit where he's smoking through that piece which is filthy by the way great mm-hmm. great choice to leave it really dirty like this is not his he ends up getting cracked because he can't afford the coke and his dealer says in the car hey you you want that other thing and he goes yeah sure and that's when we see him start start with the crack but um we see that they start doing this focus thing so even though we're on hand cam and we're shooting really close so we're getting like you know half of his face and one eye and he's blinking and he's looking up at it's that you can it's the oh shit moment when you you know you've like one hit too far or whatever and you're like oh fuck 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 so you're trying to look at just one spot and just let the moment pass and he thinks he's alone and so he like pulls his legs up and he's kind of in like a fetal position on the toilet and he hears that toilet flush the sound design the way that they present just a flushing toilet the rushing water is so sudden and so loud and it's so long it just goes on and on. It's literally like, you know, it's it's like the sound of hell. It's like your blood rushing in your ears or something. And that combined with the floating camera and his sweating face, it creates almost like a sympathetic sense of drug paranoia in you, the viewer. But- well, it is crazy how they do those close-up shots on his face. And, it, and it's like from his perspective almost. And that's another thing with the virgin suicides that Sofia Coppola did really well. Is like you felt like you were experiencing it from that character's memory. Yeah. Or point of view, you know? And that, yeah, it's so bizarre. It's so cool that you connect those two because honestly, the, the films are so different from each other. Like, Virgin Suicides is like this like powder, powder-filtered, powder soft-focused dream. It's like a Blue Valentine. Not the movie Blue but Valentine. It's, but it's, they're both slice-of-life films, because like, it is a slice of those girls' li- lives, you know? It's like this deep, dark, creepy look at the inside of the house that you would never get to see. You know, you're only seeing the bodies come out. Right. You, you mentioned off-mic that you had a note that like this was the last American folktale or whatever um in a weird way I can kind of see and I can kind of see like virgin suicides is like like a like an ode to the end of a certain era of Americana yes it's like it's the last gasp of that type of town and community and those like oh we're gonna come out and do what are they, what is it in there they're like they it's their their like the bell of the ball or whatever where they're like presented yeah and, but re, but like the movie ends with this whole family of girls committing suicide one by one so you see like the encroaching of the next thing that's going to happen in american culture where you mm-hmm. start to see like 
ennui set in and you know mental illness and it's like watching the american myth be dismantled before your eyes whereas this movie feels like the first american folklore of the modern era i do think about whether i think this is this movie is like ennui or but i think it's like deeper than that this seems so much more um i want to say violent but like it's almost visceral yeah difficult yeah this one is very visceral it's uh it's like despair it's like despair and hope it's despair and hopelessness tempered with hope and and moments of unexpected joy the it's a balancing act this whole movie is like a crazy balancing act actually this this scene we're in right here so he he says, I'm going to be all right. I'll be, I'll be fine. He lays on the tile floor outside of this bathroom. Down, he's trying to like stand up and assure her that he's okay, but he's got the spins like a motherfucker. So he reaches out to grab the stall wall. And when he reaches out, the, right as his nose touches the stall, the graffiti that comes into sight is, I hate you. Come on, dude. That is, that's so fucking excellent then he goes you know what i'm just gonna i'm just gonna and he sits down he lays down and she's like can i do anything for you some water what she ends up doing is she gets paper towel and soaks the paper towel in water he grabs the paper towel from her and sucks the water out of the paper towel (laughs) do you think that there is anything analogous here to giving christ sour wine (laughs) on the sponge Definitely that this was such a transformative moment. It just felt like, yeah, this felt like an important moment in the movie. And also, but like very true to an addict situation, right? Yeah. Like you're going to take that water from, I mean, it just made so much sense. It made this, it definitely um, was earned like the scene earned itself right it's like this absolutely checks out this makes 100% sense I could totally see this happening and then also this is a huge representation of something what do you think uh, what do you think it is representation of I mean I think it's it's really Dre saving him right I mean she's trying to offer him salvation I think it's like that small act of kindness Mm-hmm. so their relationship hinges on the two halves of Dan's um, personality or his life or what have you. Maybe some of the relationship is I'm going to be nice to her so that she doesn't tell on me. But then, and it, like the dark Dan, you know, that's that's mm-hmm. dark Dan's motivation. But maybe like the the little bit of Dan that's still inside him and screaming is responding to not the need to keep that secret but responding to that act of kindness where he's he sees something in that like this this girl rather than running away scared of me or whatever or immediately ratting me out she got me some water and what he says right after that he says just don't go okay just for a minute this little kid taking care of her teacher She's literally keeping him alive by giving him water. Like, I know not completely, but I mean, he's not even 
taking water. He's he can't even get himself water. You know, right? What I mean? Like his. So he's being lack. drugged through reality. Literally, how much more spoon fed could you be? If this is in fact a nod to the giving Christ wine as he's being sacrificed, if this is a moment of sacrifice, what is his sacrifice for, or who, or? I don't know. I'm trying to unpack the symbolism in this because it's such, or is there symbolism or is this just a real moment that they're giving us a totally raw? No, I think, Sharik, I think that Dre is trying to show him this grace. I mean, if there is any kind of symbolism behind it, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. He's not he's not doing drugs for the kids, you know? Yeah, it's it's a man (laughs) who's like being shaken, being torn apart by the stresses that maybe he's placed on himself or maybe he's being torn apart by the machine. You know, maybe he's dying in the maw of this machine for the sake of these kids. But it, it really, there's something, there's something ineffable about that moment that is just really, really powerful. After that night, he cleans up his act. And this too is part of the cycle of addiction. He empties out his ashtrays. He does all of his dishes. He does push-ups, you know, which you never hate to see Ryan Gosling doing push-ups. And I wrote down, and this time it's for good again, right? Because how many times, you know, like it, this is this is the thing. You do that. You you go a little too far and you get scared like in this moment someone's discovered his secret and he's like oh my it it gives you that moment of clarity it's the moment of clarity thing where he's Mm -hmm. like oh my god i have so fucked up my life that one of my students my like eighth grade or seventh grade students just saw me smoking crack in a bathroom stall and had to feed me or had to get me water in a paper towel oh my god okay no i'm not i'm i'm not smoking anymore I would like to point out, by the way, that when he does his dishes, all of his dishes are glasses. Oh, yeah. All of I his... didn't notice that. That is crazy. It's just because that's the uh, the only thing that he ever does in his apartment is Doesn't cocaine eat. and drink whiskey. So yeah. it's all of his, it's his whiskey glasses from night after night of binging and he does all Jesus. his dishes up. I know, it's fucked. We see him cleaning up his act and then af- at this moment we kind of step away from Dan and we watch Dre's life for a little while. One of the first things we see is she goes over to Frank's house for money is what she's doing she's she's looking for some cash because her mom is struggling because her mom I, the dad doesn't seem to be in the picture i can't remember if he died or if if it's ever even explained but it's the mom and it's dre and her brother but her brother's in prison he got arrested while he was selling drugs for frank didn't rat on frank and because of that frank is taking care of the family by giving them money which is drug money um, right this this first encounter with Frank is really interesting. There's two aspects of it that I I want to get your thoughts on. One, what do you think of the roommates? Like when she first shows up, there's they're not they're not roommates, you know. Uh, but there's two people hanging. There's some people hanging out in the apartment. A woman is cooking in the kitchen. A guy's playing video games on the couch. Frank shows up and it's kind of like, hey, how's it going? And then those two people make themselves scarce and vanish. He moves her into the kitchen away from those people and then they vamanos. So, customers? Yeah, it felt like a drug house to me. It just yeah, it just felt like there's a lot of business happening in that house like they did a good job of making it 
it, it you can tell right away that those three people don't really have a relationship with each other, but they're mm-hmm. all sharing space. And even though the house is actually, it's not like a dump. You know, there's it's a nice looking house. The kitchen looks pretty good. The the furniture is nice, but. You're right. It does kind of feel like a place you go to crash and hang and just chill or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is... Weigh things out, put them in bags. <laughs> exa- yeah, yeah. Tuck them into... <laughs> what did, what's your take on the weird racist figurines? Do you remember these? Yeah, I do. Those were... The, all the dolls. Those were really interesting. Yeah, um, there, there's like some... There's dolls. There's some ceramic figurines. Like, so is this like a historical thing? Yeah, I like, wasn't sure. Is it? It to me, my initial response was like, "This is something that Frank collects for, like, as an ironic thing." But then I was wondering if there was like a, like something a little bit more vitriolic behind it, like as a reminder of 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 the past, like not to let the past get too far out of your your memory. You know, it's in a weird way that mm-hmm. the figurines are kind of almost like Dan's book collection. Cause yes. you know like Like Eldridge Cleaver wrote Soul on Ice Like 50, 40 years 50 years before this movie came out So that's that is it's, And that's a that's a That's a vicious book in there That there's a lot of hate in that book There's a lot of that that is a very complex Text but like that's not an easy Read and it's pretty harsh And seeing those figurines is pretty fucking Harsh and I'm yeah. wondering if this Is like Frank's version Of that like Always remember that this is how they see the intellectual like counterpoint to Dan's reality. Yeah, like a like a like a more brutalist version of it, like a rougher, more mm-hmm. like street. Like he's like a like a street smart version of of it's Dan like, in a way. This is my machine. Yeah, yeah, it's it is. Yeah. It's kind of an acknowledgement of the machine. Like this has historically been the role of. Like you know, my people in this place and time and in this machine in a movie where like you have teachers smoking crack in front of children, those figurines are like one of the like harshest parts of the movie. It's it's a mm-hmm. shocking thing to see, and one of the things that's kind of fucked up and shocking about it is I actually remember when I was a kid, like maybe ten, eleven years old, um, we visited one of my great grandparents and. I mean, you look at me, my, all my family is white as the driven snow. And my, my great grandma had some of these in her kitchen, like the Aunt Jemima ceramic, even at like 11, 12, I was like, that seems fucked up. (laughs) Like, Like, what are these? Yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I remember seeing those as a kid and they've always stuck with me. And then as I got older, I was just like, Jesus, it's this, it's like that. It's a remnant from like a profoundly racist time in American history. Maybe off topic, but not that off topic. If anybody's interested, I did just record and publish an episode about the American Girl doll Addie. Anybody who grew up in the 90s might remember American Girl dolls, but I was obsessed with the um, the black character. And so I did an episode about it. It was pretty interesting because I like covered a blogger who... She is a a black girl who just gives her perspective on what it was like to be, you know, obsessed with American Girl dolls as a black girl in America and like how it was the only one that represented any kind of suffrage Um, and it had to be the black girl. But also it's like interesting to see her story told um, and to hear like actual history versus what she was seeing in school. So it's kind of a cool episode. I just posted it a couple weeks ago. 
I figured I'd mention it. Right on. Um, it in case people are listening way in the future, do you know like episode number or anything like that? Do you know what? No ep- clue. <laughs> it's just on the Cassandra Explains It All Patreon, and I try to tag stuff. There's a search bar. Is it a Patreon episode exclusive? It is. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I have hundreds of episodes on there now. Thank God. <laughs> Yeah, good. Having a big backlog of content can save you, especially when you're not recording mm-hmm. like super regularly. So Frank makes his uh, friends scarce, and then tosses mm-hmm. Dre a wad of cash. Right. Dre gets home, and uh, her, I think her mom is an EMT. Is that right? Yeah, like yeah, I think so. So her mom works weird hours, so I don't think Dre is expecting her mom to be home. Dre puts the money in like uh like a little um like coffee can or whatever like by the front door and the mom is like you went to see him and she doesn't mom this is like that it's the it's the the Eldridge Cleaver thing everyone in the everyone in this movie is compromised in some way where mm-hmm. they can't they can't fully be true to their moral center because they are somehow fallen or compromised and usually compromised by the machine. They've been forced by the by life and reality and and culture and the weight of society and civilization to make these compromises that they have to cope with. And the way that Dan copes is drugs and the way that Dre's mom copes is she accepts help from the drug dealer who's responsible for her son being in prison. You know, um, it's really, really interesting to see, to see how people get by Mm -hmm. in, in this world and and, the nuance of how complicated it can be. Yeah. And the the cost of it too. Um, and, and I love that the movie gives both, you know, it shows you the, the brutality of like, not the, not, you know, like, uh, Here's what you know. I, I I can't be the best version of myself. I have to I have to take drug money from this guy to raise my child. But then we get the fun thing later when you know she's cooking the meal with her kid, and she's like, "Oh, you're you're all good. I won't have to cook these burgers." And you see it in the same way that Dan is like this horrendously addicted crack addict, but is also a a good teacher who genuinely does care about his class and these kids, and he does want to make a difference. All he wants to do is help somebody. And the tragedy of the movie is he is unable to help himself. Even, mm-hmm. you know, um, so sp- speaking of Dan, one of my one of my favorite shots in this whole fucking movie is when that kid is te- is cheating on the test. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's that kind of it's that bit where he's giving him a pop quiz after I think an, a, again like a party night so he's giving them a test and, oh yeah and uh, <laughs> Dan uh, Gosling's just like he's got his legs like up on the desk he's just like reading a reading a news like a newspaper or a magazine or whatever and the the one kid leans forward to like look at the girl in front of him the answers and then she he leans back and fills in a bubble. And then he like peeks again and then he looks up and it's Ryan Gosling just like wide eyed just looking at him like the fuck are you doing? Really? (laughs) Really going to fucking do right now? And then he when you know like Gosling goes back to the 
back to his magazine and the kid cheats again and we hear from off screen unbelievable what are you doing and the kid's like you know and he goes all right go over there 10 points off and he makes him Mm -hmm. sit at the other desk he says second chances are rare shouldn't waste them yeah almost everything that ryan gosling teaches the students applies to him it's almost like he's trying to teach himself out of his own situation Mm -hmm. he's trying to get it's almost like he's talking to himself you know he's trying to talk himself out of this problem that he's stuck in by trying to educate these these kids on like the way that the world works especially well we'll get there but especially later on when he kind of his teaching goes off the rails a little bit i don't know what this means but i have peter pan versus parentification peter pan versus parentification i don't know i don't like i wonder like i guess maybe i wonder if dan's character is like a peter pan syndrome situation he just doesn't want to grow up so he's just lollygagging through life I don't know. know. Right. Well, and that leads to like the inappropriate parentification of Dre. Like he's just been living this like fanciful, like I'm not going to grow up kind of life. And then his way of trying to assume adulthood is just to like step into a, is to try and assume an maybe an inappropriate father figure role with Dre like right he doesn't have any real responsibilities that's why I always wonder why he's even stuck in there you know if it was me I would be in the woods if I didn't have any kids and responsibilities I mean he doesn't have to be there right but, he but wa- I think he stays for the drugs truly the well because they're the city is where you get the drugs I think I think he does want to make a difference it's because every time we see Every time we see Dan in one of the party scenes where he ends up taking a girl home or whatever, every time he's talking about how, what can I, like, what he can do to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's the bit where they're in the hotel, uh, later on in the hotel room where he's slow dancing with that girl, you know? And uh, he's doing, like, line of coke after line of coke. Actually, let me see if I can find it. There's a fucking incredible. Yeah, okay. He's hanging out with that that woman in the hotel room, and he's talking about like this would be two, so 2006. This came out Iraq War is happening, and he's talking about the W looking for WMDs, and he goes after the report came out that they hadn't found any WMDs. CNN released a report that 86 percent of Republicans still believe that there's WMDs or whatever the line is, and he goes. Mm-hmm. And then he like falls back against the wall and he goes, so like, what the fuck? What can I do about that? Right. But that to me is the that's like the refrain to all of Dan's drug fueled arguments is how powerless he feels to change. I identify so hard with that. (laughs) Oh, my God. I think we I mean, I think a lot of us do, you know, like. Yeah. But there is a certain point where exhaustion and burnout set in and you just do end up getting ground down and your blood becomes the oil that lubricates the gears of this massive grinding machine and that's where mm-hmm. dan is that, yeah that's ex- and he's he's trying to tell them the dates and of these people that did you know stand up and speak out and protest and all these movements of like women's suffrage and things like that and segregation and 
but it's like he can't even keep it together long enough to really you know well he does impact the kids though because one of the dads he runs into at the bar is like yeah my daughter she just started college you know or or she became a teacher you know because of you something like that it's like he's so messed up he can't even hear what the guy is saying to him really And, and the guy sees that and just like maybe what we see in his face is pity Mm-hmm. Or like, but it's almost like sadness that never meet your heroes. Yeah. You know, he sees like this person that meant so much to my daughter and changed her life. This is that guy. This is who that person is. And he goes, you have a good night, buddy. And just backs away. Yeah. The bit where he's in the hotel after he gets into the like, well, what can I do? What mm-hmm. can one man do? You know, Um, he starts doing line literally he's doing lines of coke and he says i cleaned up for the most part i do it now to get by but i can handle it the kids keep me focused and i and that's the end of the line the kids keep me focused and i and then he just trails off because he completely loses his train of thought it's and you know what he does the next thing we see after I i love that after all the party scenes when he's we see him grappling with his powerlessness his feelings of hopelessness and overtly dealing with his addiction we always cut right back to him in the classroom right afterwards and the next day his first lesson is sun goes up sun goes down what do you get a new day even that line is is double loaded because he's saying it as a way to like give himself hope cheer himself up like okay look i fell off the wagon i spent last night doing cocaine in a hotel room with a woman i didn't know and that night ended with us slow dancing in our clothes in front of a mirror that's rough but it's a new day i can get a grip on this i can change but sun goes up sun goes down we don't end with sunrise in that right in the way he formulated that sentence you, that is interesting you end with darkness it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not sun goes down sun comes up and you've got a new day it's sun Mm-mm. sun goes up sun goes down but also just what what he's saying there is <laughs> cy- cyclical so even though about that. even though he's giving him trying to give himself hope by like it's a new day here we go okay i'm this time for real what he the sentence that he just said is this will just continue forever it's an endless cycle the sun goes down the sun comes up and it's just a new day and then that's honestly maybe the most nihilistic thing in here because it just it kind of shows you that a new day doesn't matter it's just another day in this endless you know um succession succession of days in hell yeah that's really fucking scary and he's saying it to a group of like six seventh graders mm-hmm. really cool subtle stuff going on especially in the classroom scenes well what's your take on that no I, t- I totally agree it's like his walk of shame morning walk that's a great way to put it the classroom scenes are his walk of shame oh, yeah dre pretends to lose her key because she's, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, oh, can I get a ride home? She wants to, like, see what, what this guy's about and learn more about him. So she pretends to lose her key so she can go and wait at his place. 
Ryan Gosling runs in and he scans his apartment and you think at first that he's running in to make sure that his apartment's like not dirty there's not like underwear flopped all over the place like does it look presentable that's not at all what he's doing he wants to make sure there's no stuff out right he and he can't remember whether or not there is one because no one's ever over there and two because he's a really hardcore drug addict so he's looking around to see if he left out a straw or if there's a baggie of something he's like is there anything in here that she shouldn't see Okay, we're good. Come on in. Even like the set design stuff and like the props are great. They end up doing all of their. He's got a date that night with that teacher from work, and uh, Dre Oof. Dre is gonna. I know, right? <laughs> Dre is gonna help him like make dinner. His knives are all super fucking dull. I know it's such <laughs> a tiny detail, but like watching them cut, he's like sawing at these carrots with a chef's knife. That's this is me. I, my kitchen like i only have one burner that works and most of my kitchen is covered in paint because i like sometimes at night go in there and start art projects sure and i just i didn't use it for (laughs) i don't i'm not great at cooking it's it's survival mode you know and yeah i relate to dan's kitchen unfortunately that dan's kitchen is like the my nightmare i'm a huge Mm -hmm. cook cook every meal um so like that's probably why i noticed i was like oh somebody get this man a whetstone that's so dangerous to cut with a dull knife (laughs) um i'm like using scissors sometimes i didn't put this together until just now but dre give the, the advice that dre gives him is tell her a joke make her laugh the first thing we see when the teacher shows up is dan telling her a joke it's just an adult joke. It's about the, right. it's about the taxi driver. You know, he's telling her a funny anecdote. So yeah. he actually is taking romantic advice from like a you know twelve year old or whatever, thirteen year old, however old she is, because because in a weird way, I I like your I like that Peter Pan note that you found because in a weird way, they are peers. He's not. A ma- he's not having mature adult relationships with anybody. He only really tries to have like meaningful human relation, meaningful adult relationships, intellectually, and intellectually only through like despairing at the state of the machine in the world. He's not asking anybody about their interests or learning anything about anybody else he's just lamenting the state of the world to other grown-ups and then fucking them and that's the extent of his i can relate i do feel like a lot of what i do these days is just like screaming at people like it's so bad how can you not see how bad it is (laughs) and this as they run away down the street from me he i mean he is initially charming and a little bit funny but then he sneaks away to the bathroom during the date for that quick bump, you know. Um, and it's like while dinner's cooking too. He's like almost done with the sauce. He's building. He's like making the spaghetti sauce thing, and he sneaks off to the bathroom, does a quick bump. I wrote down he's thinking about it literally all the time. Every, you you start. This is where you realize it. Even when he's doing other stuff. Some part of him is wondering when the next bump is, 
when the next hit's gonna come from or like where the where he's gonna get his next stash is his stash running low how can he sneak that into any situation at all how can he make a situation about and then i'm gonna pop over here for a quick bump it it truly is like the 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 loci of him it is the the center of him the focus of his life i wrote down um cocaine has become the new artificial locus of his soul He's replaced his soul That's with crazy. this chemical drug. Um, yeah. And then, what do you what do you think of this sex scene on the couch? They don't go to the bedroom because his bed is literally just a mattress on the floor. They have sex on the couch, and if I'm recalling correctly, there's there's like a you know it's there's like an intense. Um, like kind of connected romanticism to it initially but as the scene goes on and progresses we spend more time focused on um the woman's face and there's like a sort of blurring almost uh as she like reaches her climax where her face goes from pleasure to like this might be a little much like the intensity level reaches a point where you're not sure I wasn't sure precisely whether or not she was enjoying it or not or whether she was just For sure. en- enduring it. Do you know what I mean? Am I Yes. Okay. Yes. No, I don't think that's a reach at all. I got the exact same feeling. I was like, "What? This is this feels interesting. Yep, something's going on here." Yeah. Like she realized that he's not there. Yeah, and got really uncomfortable. That makes sense to me that she would like realize that he's not really in the moment. He's just like fulfilling a mechanical need. I think it is important that on the the way that they have sex is not doggy style, but it's like from behind laying down. Mm-hmm. So they're not face to face. The one right. time that we do, well, yeah, the one time that we do see him like in a sexual relationship with an adult, they're not facing each other. He's not able to like, but it's like the least connected way to to do that. Not saying it's not hot, but like, you know, it's but it, yeah. But it's like really a disconnected moment. And one of the, the way that I initially read that her like reaction near the end of sex there was that she she doesn't know that he's not present because she can't see him. She's disconnected from it. All she has is the physical feeling of him and none of his soul. That human connection is lost. And then that next, the next morning is so brutal. The loss of any vestige of genuine human connection in the ache and gray fog of a drug hangover. Um, cause she, you can see her, there's like a slight note of reservation when she, as she's talking to him, but she's like, Hey, I, I had fun last night. You know, you were funny and you made a good meal and i mean eat, i'm eating cold spaghetti because we got freaky and hey man who doesn't like to get laid so let's let's talk now let's do the human thing mm-hmm. but, so we we had you know we had dinner and we had sex mm-hmm. now let's have a conversation and that's the element that he can't handle she's like really you're still not here that's concerning i'm gonna go <laughs> what well, his he's so detached which is yeah she has the day off too like they they're both free and you know like so what are you gonna do and he's like i should probably get some writing done not looking at her sitting on the couch and she goes well i should let you get to it then and he goes yeah thanks thanks though i had a good time Oof. 
Yeah, that's, that's rough. That's, that's brutal. That is really harsh, man. That was, yeah, that's that's, that's a, super harsh. <laughs> Thanks, though. I uh, I had a good time. So, yeah. Um, do you remember where the door was? It's over right. There. Like, yeah, dude. So when we they initially talk, we learn that they've gone out together before. I, he says, like, "Hey, sorry about last time. Could do you want to?" You want to come over to my place for dinner or whatever? So they had another date that kind of didn't go well. Then there's this one that kind of didn't go well. So she doesn't actually get a whole lot of like backstory or side story. She's just this character who kind of like pops into his life. I think maybe by design too, because really there is an implication that he just uses her to fulfill like some physical need. he i mean he probably does like her but really he just is using her in like classic addict faction i mean when we see the third time that they end up together that's is there a resolution okay. to that like no i don't think so yeah because i i always want i i remember thinking as i was looking through my notes i don't have anything on and i'm like did she go mm-hmm. to the to the principal or the police or like is there any I mean, that's about. like minor league stuff for women. That's <laughs> nothing to write home about. Nothing to write home about. I mean, can uh, do you want to expound? Because what we're, what what happens here is Dan gets loaded, shows up at this teacher's house in the middle of the night, high out of his fucking mind, mm-hmm. and he comes in and he's like hey sorry about that but she he woke her up out of a dead sleep in the middle of nowhere shows up and doesn't even really try to like woo or or make any kind of conversation he just starts like kiss trying to kiss her trying to kiss her and she's no very clearly no pushing back nope dan you're drunk nope i can't i'm not gonna do this right now and he's straight up as she's shoving and slapping at him straight up tries to rape her and there's no couch. viciousness. There's no viciousness. It's not like he's angry. It's just like he's on autopilot. It, that's exactly right. It's the automaton nature of him that is yeah. most terrifying. He doesn't slap her. He's not hitting her. The, he's like, he is holding her down and utilizing his his greater strength and body weight to like manipulate her. I also think it's telling that he takes her to the couch. Mm-hmm. And that's where that takes place. Um even though her bedroom is down the hall, I'm presuming he's been here before. It's not the floor. It's not the wall. He goes straight to the couch. It's it's like we were talking about earlier with the with the ingrained habits of addiction, the cigarette thing. Like, we've seen his pattern. He does cocaine. He drinks some alcohol. And then he goes and finds a woman. And then they go and have some, like, pseudo-intellectual conversation where he laments how hard things are and stuff not you know whatever that is and then has sex with her and he's so fucked up that there is no there's dark dan and then there's like teacher hope and hope and light dan there's no hope and light dan here at all there's just dark dan and dark dan's on autopilot and you're right it's not it's not malicious it's just straight up like okay well i did i did x i did y and now i have sex with a woman so she she breaks his nose. Yeah, she does. She, I mean, she punches. Is that because he is so out of it? I don't think he even sees it coming. No, not at all. And like, he it never even with her like screaming. Yeah, it, I don't think it ever occurs to him that he did anything wrong. 
No. Until she breaks his nose and locks herself in her bedroom. And he uh, he uses like the it's like the arm cover from the edge of her couch. Well, I, the, oh, I think I have the line written down. Yeah. So he's standing outside her door and he's like, wow. So that was pretty, pretty crazy, huh? So I'm bleeding a bit. So I used your couch arm thing, but I'm going to wash it. Like it, it in that moment, he's like, "I don't want her to be mad that I bled on the couch arm thing after she broke my nose while I was trying to rape her." So, I will wash this thing. Don't you worry, baby. I'll see you in school tomorrow. Like, that's how far out of it he is. The principal does call him in to the uh, to the office right after that. God, dude, I'm just, I know the, I'm looking at my notes and I know the next thing that happens, he goes to his family dinner and I'm like, there's so much wine happening at dinner. He's got, he's, he's off the, the crack again, allegedly. Although I would like to point out that even though he's cleaned up his act, he did bring his crack pipe and crack to dinner because he smokes in the garage. Right. (laughs) So it's that fucking thing where you're like, dude, no, I'm no way, man. It's, it's the, it's the, the classic, like. Hair. We've seen you see it in other movies, like as like a trope, but here it's so raw. Where I'm done. This is it. Mm-hmm. The last. I'm no. My God. I tried to rape my coworker. I'm done with it. I am gonna bring the pipe and the crack though. And you're like, why? Because how else are you gonna survive a family function? With this, with his dad. Honestly, I can kind of see it. I she, get it. Jesus, I mean, dude. his like, dad is a standout scene. Yeah, I wrote down the dialogue, but I I honestly don't know if I should read it. <laughs> it's really not great. It's so dark. It's really fucking dark. He um his dad is an overt racist, really overt racist. Who um, and you can tell that like the second that you know Dan calls him out on it. Um, he acquiesces and he, he realizes, I mean, he's like, you know, I don't even mean all this shit I'm spouting. I'm just saying it because I'm a part of this stupid fucking machine and I just want to love my child, but I can't because this is like the cultural system that I've been brainwashed to follow and be, and you can see that exhaustiveness in like one sigh. It's insane. And yes, all of everything you just said and also it's it's you, you remember early, we've been talking about how you said like Dan is just like dragged through his life totally passive with no active agency because because he's weighed down by the monkey on his back and he's just like a slave to this chemical dad is too dad has a f- literal full rocks glass of whiskey I'm talking like a half pint of whiskey in a glass after he's been drinking wine all night a scary amount of alcohol yeah <laughs> uh, yeah yeah frightening amount of liquor um but it's that it is the passivity of dan you see where he gets it from almost like when dan like checks checks his dad on like dad you can't say fucked up shit like that that's so bad his dad's like yeah you're right yeah you're right i'm sorry there's one of the darkest things, one of the bleakest things for me in this movie is watching, in any movie like this, is watching people shuffle through life in a fog. Most frightening of all is watching, in this movie, watching a child start to descend into that fog. And uh, we get that cool, this amazing intercut 
of Dre dealing drugs as Dan goes to the garage and smokes crack after talking to his dad and his dad spewing all that racist, horrid vitriol. Um, but he's smoking crack in his parents' house at family dinner. He hugs his mom, and his mom's like, you take care of yourself. You're a good boy, Dan, or whatever. And while he's driving in the car, face, to- it's that automaton thing again, that robot thing. A tear, one tear rolls down his, his cheek, and you, it's the, it's almost like the first shot of the movie again, where he's almost raped a coworker. he's gone to family dinner, he's gotten totally hammered with his dad, he's smoked crack in his mom's garage, and now he's just driving home, you know, at the end of it all. As we're moving through this, uh, this like... Uh, montage of Dre selling drugs for Frank she pops into a motel so we haven't seen what's happened after family dinner but we know that that Dan smoked some crack and uh, she rolls in knocks on the door and uh, well, come on in uh, a woman answers the door and says like come on in sweetie you know like I'll it'll be just a second because the guy who's buying the crack is out of sight and i mean spoilers out comes dan from the bathroom and you know what's fucking crazy is he doesn't not buy it from her right it's not his wake-up call at all no he's in the middle of a drug orgy with he's in he's in a crack cocaine sex orgy in a hotel Mm -hmm. and Dre has just walked through the door with a bag of crack and this you want to talk about like rock bottom this is rock bottom do you the teacher of this kid buy crack from the kid you're trying to save from a life of selling crack to people like you that's that's it's so rough man this is his whole mission is to stop is to make sure that dre does not grow up to be a drug dealer that ends up selling crack on the streets and the last one of the last things he does in the movie is he buys crack from her to like fuel a drug party i wrote down life is hard man life is really fucking hard (laughs) um right (laughs) i can't believe they hit me with another double i just can't catch a break she she rolls out he does this thing, but she comes back the next day and like knocks on the door, comes in. And uh, man, the, the end of this movie is so incredible because, in a way, Dre finally manages to reverse Dunn's sentence about the son. You know, she, she comes in and he's he's there. You know, it's it's the same thing as the beginning, wide eyed and hating himself and hasn't slept a wink because the crack won't let him go down. And she said, "What the last lines, the last two lines are that I wrote down are, what happened to your friends? You go down, they're gone. And then they leave the hotel together and walk out into the morning. And I wrote down, finally, the sun goes down, sun comes up, a new day. Yes. 
I left. The, I probably like you know I'm bringing some of my own hope to this thing because I don't. Right. Want, I don't. We don't want to believe that Dan's going to be trapped literally forever in this existential intellectualist hell where he's stuck doing crack cocaine until he dies of it or is killed in one of his w- many risky and self destructive behaviors. Yes. I, I, no. I. They, I want to watch it with those eyes, like with a little more hope next time at the end. Yeah. Um, do you not I always feel like the end it? is so uncertain. That's why I do think it's like a slice of life. I, f- I don't know that it has a direct like message at the end of like what's really going to happen, you know. But I do think you're right about the symbol, some of the symbolism here and how Dre can kind of symbolize the hope in the movie. What if her coming back? I'm wondering if it's so that she can go there and symbolically share rock bottom with him because her brother is in prison. We see her struggle with the fact that her brother's in prison for dealing crack. She ends up Mm -hmm. doing that for Frank because she thinks it's a way that she can help her family because she's making money. But seeing what it's done to her teacher, because they're, they've both failed each other in that moment because she has this thing where she's like, I'm never going to end up like that. I don't know why you're worried about me. I can, she says to her mom, I can take care of myself. And Dan mm-hmm. has, is constantly like, you can't end up this way. Don't worry. I'm going to get my shit together. She asks him when they're cooking, what does it feel like when you do that stuff? And he doesn't answer because he can't. You know, like how do you, how do you talk about your, your cocaine addiction to a child? Mm-hmm. So they have this like weird unspoken promise to each other. He's going to clean up his act and get straight and she's never going to end up selling crack on the street. And then they <laughs> run into each other both guiltily. Like he's like, oh my God, are you fucking selling crack? And she's like, oh my God, are you buying this crack? And he's like, oh my God, here's the money. And she's like, oh my God, here's the crack. And then the next day she comes back up and it's almost like they plop down like on the bed next to him like, so we're pretty fucked up, huh? We should probably get ourselves sorted. And then out the door that from this from zero, starting over, like and there you go. Sunrise is such a typical rebirth image, you know, like here we go. Truly, this is the way that this is the this is the optimistic way that Dan meant it. A new mm-hmm. day is another chance. It's not a cycle. It doesn't have to be a cycle. And it doesn't have to end with sundown and darkness. It can be hope. Let's go and find that hope together again mm-hmm. for good. But they do see each other. Maybe that's the most honest moment between the two of them. They see mm-hmm. each other for who they really are. And the 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 it's almost like confession, you know, like I, not to... I don't think like like you know talking to a guy in a box as confession is like a you know I, I'm not you know but like it's like therapy you know if when you can just purge that thing get that thing out and admit it to somebody else and feel that like it's almost like that rush of shame that you feel that profound like Dan you know that that profound rush of shame that you feel when you admit something shameful is almost like the poison like it's like a purgative effect of the poison rushing free from you and once it's gone it's gone and i think in this moment this is their moment of they see each other in their lowest like most compromised and corrupted state and that intense insane shame experience that they have of like fuck this is really where i am I am buying crack from a kid in a hotel with 
what appears to be like two sex workers and vice versa you know i'm selling crack to my teacher oh my god is this what i am maybe that was the exorcism that was required for two newborn people to to walk out of that room i'm not saying like and then dan never did crack again but maybe like this is the first upslope the first step yeah up. well and i like how you know like you said it ha- they kind of have to see each other in that final scene to end the movie and there's a way that this happens where it doesn't feel earned and it actually does make sense for it to end this way so i like it do you f- wait do you mean that this moment doesn't feel earned or do you think there's no a- it does oh but it- i think there's a easily there's a movie where this easily doesn't feel earned right where sure. it's like but there are these characters and even maybe with different actors you couldn't pull this off with the same script i completely but- agree these characters somehow it's just like you're so invested in Sharika Epps at this point it's like and Ryan Gosling I don't know they work so well together it's crazy everyone's got such good chemistry I I, like I don't I don't care that this is where you're supposed to be because that's how the movie of course is going to end because it's predictable it's like no like this is their scene you know yeah it not a lot of dialogue and yet the most powerful moment it's 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 not even a denouement in a weird way in a weird way it's like the moral climax of the film because finally we've we've hit a moment where people are where people are not compromising because they're fully compromised there's no more compromise to make you know they're they're fully fallen and there's nowhere to go but up yeah we yeah we, we did a fight club episode one time this is the rock bottom moment but not Right, you know, not mis misinterpreted by thousands of college students all across America. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is all the notes that I have for this movie. I cannot, re- if listener, I cannot recommend this film highly enough. Cassandra, thank you all those years ago for sending me this this DVD and that twenty dollar bill and the the request to do this episode. I've seen this movie five times now because I we pushed the episode off so long that every like couple of weeks I'd be like okay <laughs> I gotta have to watch it I gotta watch it again so I'm sharp for it and so I'd watch it again and then I'd watch it again and then finally I was just like I haven't I, I watched it a month ago I can't watch this movie again it's gonna just wreck me I have to just talk about it with Cassandra and yes I found this in my notes it says for those who don't quite get east coast cool jazz or why it's special I have two words for you half Nelson the song is by Miles Davis who created new a new melody using most of the chord changes to Tad Darman's Ladybird in early recorded in early 1947 half Nelson was recorded for Savoy in August of 47 by the Miles Davis all-stars um so apparently it was like a revolutionary song in the jazz world. I don't really know about it because I always wondered what, like, why did they call this movie Half Nelson? Is it like a wrestling thing or what the reference could be? Um, and I found a couple random references, but I think that that's what it is. I'm not sure, but I'm that's my best guess. It's so weird. I was listening to Miles Davis at work all day today. Um, that's weird. That is weird. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there was a... Um... Yeah, it's a wrestling move too. The full Nelson is when you get both you hook underhook of both arms and then lock your hands behind their neck. A half Nelson is basically half of that, where you're ha- But that's perfect for Ryan Gosling's character because it's a half lock, it's a half bind. One half of you is frozen and locked, and the other side is struggling to get free. So I mean, that's 
right i always wondered that's what Dan, i found that I'm like hmm this is a smart movie this is a smart movie written by really smart people honestly it's a smart movie written by really smart people who you can i can kind of imagine like sit around at night and talking to each other like and then you know when the report came out and there was no WMDs, <laughs> like they just needed a movie so that they could tell everybody else this, so they didn't end up doing crack in a hotel room. <laughs> I don't, yeah. And then the only thing that feels untrue, like his drug use, feels true to me. And I believe that Ryan Gosling did a lot of work, like into character, and just like trying to learn about, you know addiction and everything because you can tell from his character and probably the writers did the same thing but like this rock bottom thing that always comes up in drug movies it's like I don't know that there really is a rock bottom and it's almost like a harm reduction thing for me at this point just to say that like there doesn't need to be a rock bottom for you to get sober or to change your life you know it could just be anything it could just be because you're sick of feeling the way you're feeling right now and that could that is totally good enough you don't have to like ruin everything and burn it to the ground to to change i agree i don't think that rock bottom is a universal or like definitive moment i think that rock bottom is a is an individual experience it's the moment yeah definitely it's every it's the moment for any given person when no more is acceptable yeah, this is a, it, this is the furthest reach I can go with this, and maybe like maybe your life is still like on the surface, like fine. But personally, you've reached the moment where you're like, "This is it. Mm-mm, nope, no yeah. more." And that it's it wherever your turning point is, that to you is your rock bottom. And for some people, for Dan, it I think it also scales dependent on how profound a grip your addiction has on you too, mm-hmm. because. You know, the more power that you're, the more, the longer you're into an addiction, the deeper down that hole you are, the bigger that beast gets. So the more force it can exert, the further it can push you down. But yeah, like, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there is like a, and, uh, you know, I burned my house down and, uh, I like, I don't have any friends left and I lost a leg and you're like, no, it doesn't have to be that insane. It can just, sometimes it's death by a thousand cuts true yeah just it, lots of yeah yeah lots of little things or honestly just I, I like what you said a second ago just like sick of feeling this way i just don't like feeling like this anymore there's there's got to be a different way to feel so i'm gonna do that instead <laughs> um you sent me that interview um like months and months and months ago now but uh ryan gosling when they were interviewing him ap- after his oscar nomination he's he was living on skid row while they yeah. shot this um like so yeah talk about doing research he was around that i mean that neighborhood is notoriously drug addled and filled with addicts and criminals and dead people <laughs> like skid row yeah. is a really rough room and ryan gosling lived there as a famous and well-known hollywood actor even at that point which is wild fucking wild but you're and also I spent my fair share of time homeless on venice beach and i can tell you it's definitely intense and dangerous yeah i mean I, I can't imagine. I mean, you can you you don't even have to imagine. You have lived experience. So, does this when you watch this movie, are, are, how does your is it the the just the film itself or is it some of your life experiences that bring resonance and power and depth to it? I don't know. I think that when I watched it, I mean, I just was immediately drawn to it, and 
I'm a gosling head, so I would watch all of his movies. But I think what spoke to me is just that feeling of being so isolated and so far gone um, and disconnected from your own self and your own reality. And, you know, I don't know why, like, I felt so... (laughs) close to this film but i do and it feel it has like it feels like a hole in my heart uh that i didn't know was there i don't know why but i just and i love the cinematography and i love the acting i love the cast i love the writing right and it's just filled with all these like beautiful little easter eggs of like historical references and literature and i don't know i like it but there is something about like the vibe of it that deeply like I definitely connect to on a soulful level and that's sad. Um, but it, that's okay. But you're right. There is a soul in this movie. There's an, there's a, there's an indescribable element that is underneath or inside of it that calls out and, and sings. And it's almost like you like it, like when you watch it, I don't know, maybe no, maybe not everybody resonates, it, you know, gets it like this, but it does feel like when you're watching it, it's like somebody running their finger around the rim of a glass and then you start to ring on that frequency and it's, it, it you harmonize with the film in a, in a way that's painful and beautiful and profound and I, I mean, I've seen it five times now, so I've learned some right. stuff about it and myself and shit, but this is a really excellent movie, but it's super late, and uh, your your kids are not going to bed, and I'm, I have to I have to sleep, or I'm going to just fall out of this chair. But before we go, Cassandra, where can people find you? What do you want to point them to? And is there anything you want to recommend? I'll get I have my notebook with me because your recommendations yeah. are always fucking fire. They're amazing. If you like this, definitely check out the Florida Project. It's in a similar vein, I'd say. It's like just as moving, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think is good. Also, <laughs> Waking Life, uh, classic. Um, I don't know why that's even on my list, but Darjeeling Limited, greatest movie. Squid and the Whale, obviously a great movie. Um, something really dark. I don't know if people have seen this, but it's Tideland, and it also is like drug addiction, but it's way darker than this. Oh, yeah, I know. But- I've talked... <laughs> I think we I talked, talked Tideland. I talked yeah. to you once about like, hey, do you want to do Tideland? And you were like, I don't think I can. <laughs> so I watched that movie in a point in time in my life that I like was not ready to unpack. But I, I if you guys ever circle back to it, I might, yeah, like to I'd at least like to hear it. But okay. all right, cool, cool. Those I, are like esoteric watches, I guess. Mm. And I for really for podcast guys, the thing is like, yeah, I've got Cassandra explains it all or drenched in drama. And truly, it's like, you know, we're talking about people that are in a position of power. Um, This person that I'm exposing right now for doing things to me, illegal things, you know, like taking a false um, report out on me and things. He's in a position of power and, in my opinion, abused that power and can use that power to hurt and silence myself and other women. And um, I just want everybody to become aware of it, you know. Because silent, there's, you know, there's power in speaking out about things, I think. I completely agree. Um, you had, you'd talked about on that show, but right, last thing here, um, rather than just sending people to go and listen, um, how can people, is there a way, are there ways that people can help? 
Um, I know you had talked about if if there was like uh, anybody who knows good lawyers or people who can give good like legal counsel or legal advice or and I believe you also um, threw out like a call for people with similar stories or people who just had had gone through things and wanted to like speak their truth as well to reach out. Where can people reach out to you? Like there was an email address, I believe. Yeah, I mean, my email is Cassandra explains it all at gmail.com. And then, I mean, really, if you guys want to join my Patreon or we're all over social media on every platform. Um, so to try to make it easier, because, yeah, I am going to get sued into oblivion. There's no doubt about that. I mean, this guy's a lawyer that I'm going up against. I am a nostalgia podcaster with a bunch of kids and a full time job. So really kind of out of my league on this one but the more people that you know speak out the easier it kind of gets for me and yeah i mean i do feel like i was stuck in this crazy isolation for the last year and i felt like when by doing this episode we are breaking the spell of the curse that i was under you know what i mean it's like right there like we could almost touch it almost almost (laughs) almost and then it's like finally when this stuff came to an end like i felt i felt like a thousand pound weight lifted off of me um well good there's some serendipitous timing well everything in its time Yes. There you have it. <laughs> exactly. Um, Cassandra will be back um, on the show, and I be- I'm hoping we've talked about it in the past. I'm hoping I will be over on Cassandra Explains It All for some really cool episodes really soon. Uh, Cassandra will definitely be back on Measuring Flicks for a Barbie extravaganza sometime hey. in the next couple of months. And you cause... know how much I love Ryan. Oh, I know. I drank the Kool-Aid fully on this movie, so it's just going to be me like, you You don't understand, Cassandra. Let me explain. But then I, I actually can't explain because if I do, then I'm just playing <laughs> guitar at you, you know, like that's the thing. Um, and then I, we have been, can I talk about the, the project that you've yeah. been pitching? All right. I'm hoping that I will be over on Cassandra's show in the next, uh, once again, in the next couple months. We got a couple movies to watch, and I want to get my notes really in order before I get on here. But we're going to do like a deep dive exploration of the phenomenon of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I could not be more fucking excited. It feels like exactly the right time to do it. All the movies we've talked about watching are excellent and also problematic but which is good for this i didn't topic. know this was even a fetish well I'm... we're i can't wait to get into it with you man this is really this will be exciting stuff um so we're gonna get into the uh the the for good or ill we're gonna i, I garden state's probably where we'll start but we're gonna do a deep dive exploration of the manic pixie dream girl and i can't think of anybody better to do it with than you yes so, i might be the queen of them <laughs> <laughs> all right um well we'll let you get out of here we've ta- we've chattered at you for a long time listeners thank you all so much for listening Thank you all so much for everybody who supports the podcast. If you like what you heard today, you can head on over to patreon.com slash quillandfilm, Q-U-I-L-L-A-N-D-F-I-L-M. Helps keeps the light, keep the lights on, gets new microphones when they die, all that good stuff. Um, and just is good for my soul to see you all over there and, and taking care of us. Uh, MeasuringFlixPodcast at gmail.com. Go and check out all of Cassandra's shit and tune in next time. Don't do crack. <laughs>